Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the new to New Books and Economics, a channel of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Utsav Saxena and I am a host for this channel. So today I'm very happy to be joined by author Brett Scott to talk about his latest book, Cloud Money, Cash, Cards, Crypto and the War for Our Wallets, which was released earlier this year. So Brett, as I just found out, let me welcome you back to this podcast. Great to be back. It's been a while since I was here. I think the last time I was 20, 2013, I was uh, on the network. Right. So was this after you released your previous book, Heretic, A Heretic's Guide yeah. to uh, Finance, I think that's what it was called, right? A Heretic's Guide to Global Finance was my, was my first book yeah, back in 2013. So yeah, great to be back. Great. Um, so, okay, let's start by you telling us a little bit about yourself, your academic background, your professional background, what you've done, and after which we'll talk about the book. Sure. Let me try and give a short version of that. Um, I'm, I'm come from South Africa. Uh, so I grew up in South Africa. My parents are Zimbabwean. Uh, so I've spent a lot of time in Southern Africa growing up. Um, but I studied anthropology and history at university. So and was very interested in economic anthropology. And, you know, economic anthropology has quite a I don't want to say a battle, but at least a sort of certain amount of tension with the economics discipline historically, because they sort of start from like quite different positions. Often economic anthropology is sort of looking at a lot of pre-capitalist groups and groups that don't necessarily rely on exchange, like avert monetary exchange and stuff like that. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics between economic anthropology versus economics. Um, so, yeah, that's my sort of background. But then I actually... Uh, also have a kind of an anthropological impulse when in, in life more generally. So actually, I, I went and joined the financial sector after, after university, partly out of as a, just a desire to explore the financial system because I, I came from quite a critical, a critical sort of political background, but found that I didn't really understand enough about the financial system that I was often critiquing. So I actually went and worked in finance, um, and uh, yeah, I went and worked in derivative contracts in the midst of the financial crisis at a brokerage firm. So I have a, I have a bunch of experience in sort of like exotic derivatives in, in uh, high finance, as it were, um, which isn't necessarily like actually very useful knowledge for everyday life, but it was it's very like niche knowledge. Um, but it was quite useful for me to sort of explore and understand the dynamics of big finance and what's going on in these big you know, investment banks and funds and all these kind of things. Um, so I worked for a couple of years on that, and then I was commissioned to write this book, The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, which was basically a guide for or to high finance for activists and people who are it was like civil society, should we say, 
people who were interested in challenging or like wanting to understand what was going on. And that was around 2013 that that, that came out. And then ever since then, I kind of worked a lot on alternative finance. So looking at models of, you know, how do you change the banking sector? How do you change currencies? These kind of things. So alternative forms of finance. And that often took me into the orbit of the tech industry because there was a lot of people in the sort of fintech world, financial technology, who perceived themselves to be doing a kind of alternative finance or democratizing the financial sector. So that I often got sort of drawn to the sort of the tech world, and but I came became very critical of the fintech world and the sort of narratives that would um, go around. And actually, you know, cloud money, which my latest book is kind of looking at a sort of it, it's taking a critical view on the fintech sector. And actually, what I'm what I'm arguing is that actually what we're seeing right now is big tech and big finance. At a, if you sort of zoom out at a global scale, are are trying to fuse and are actually crushing the cash system, the physical cash system in the process. Um, and yeah, so I guess cloud money is coming out of my explorations of many years of, you know, exploring the dynamics of monetary systems, how they're reported on and so on. And so, yeah, that's a very basic background. I see. I see. Thank you for that. Um, so a quick note to our listeners, actually. So one of the most unique parts, I think, personally, of this book is that it's not necessarily the subject matter itself in the sense that you have, you know, a plethora of books written on, you know, digital money and cryptocurrency and so on. But the way that Brett sort of approaches that from his anthropological background, which is why, you know, I sort of asked this question in the first place. Okay. So this brings me to my first question about your book, which is that... So at what what point did you sort of... Okay, so you've mentioned that you were working in high finance, right? Something like that, around the time of the financial crisis, crisis of 2008. So at what point, point of time did you sort of start thinking more deeply about the monetary system as opposed to just the financial system? Sure. And actually, that's an interesting question because many people in high finance, so your big traders and, you know, and I was working exotic derivatives, which is in these swap contracts, which the public often thinks of being very complicated, right? So, um, and many people in high finance actually, you know, they kind of buy into this sort of, you know, uh, mythology of their own hype or, or as it were, kind of sort of... Um, and but but in reality, many people who are working in, in 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 high finance actually have very poor understanding of the monetary system. You actually don't really need to know much about the monetary system to work in in, in high finance. You know, a little, it's a little bit. I'm trying to think of a metaphor for this. It's a little bit like it's a little bit like a you know a painter or, or who who can paint really interesting paintings, but has no idea about like how the underlying paint is made. Right. I mean, I don't know if that's a, per I'm not sure if that's a perfect metaphor, but actually uh, um, there was actually very, very poor understanding of monetary systems within high finance and plus high school, they didn't, it's very specialized. And actually it was only after I left that I really started to, to, to go more into that. And obviously from my anthropology background and, and economic anthropology has a lot of um, interesting studies of um, different forms of exchange of which monetary exchange is but one. So I've always uh, kind of, uh, had an interest in, in this, but I, I it's only really when I started engaging with alternative forms of money, actually, you know, local currencies and alternative currencies that I actually started to think a lot more about the dynamics of the normal monetary system. And um, yeah, so I guess it's sort of been a process. I, I got involved in monetary reform movements as well, who were looking at, you know, challenging the sort of uh, the politics of the issuance of money. So there's different types of uh, monetary reform 
group. So I guess over a period of about six, seven years, I really started to kind of like delve a lot more into the the depths of. And again, if you're looking at finance more broadly, you know, finance is often um, built upon the monetary system. But there's many people within finance who, you know, you know, if you're involved in hedge funds and stuff, you're not really thinking about that, that underlying part of it. So actually, you can get quite distracted by the sort of top layers of finance, as it were. And you can spend ages analyzing the sort of more higher levels of finance without looking at the monetary system. So I actually started to move away from looking at um, these more abstract layers of finance and to look more to what, you know, the sort of everyday um, monetary system. And, you know, ironically, one last thing I'll say about this is that you know, many people in the public, they, they perceive things like derivatives to be complicated, but they think things like money are quite simple, right? So you say, oh, people say, oh, you know, I have, a, I, I, it's, it's the, the money, money is like quite a simple thing. It's just like what you use for exchange, whereas like, you know, an over-the-counter derivative contract is really complicated. I actually think it's the other way around. You know, derivatives are just like jargon-laden legal contracts that are kind of bets on things. They actually, they're not actually that complicated, but understanding the whole network structure of a monetary system is far more complex. It's far more interesting, actually. I see, I see. Uh, it's The last point is really fascinating to me in particular. Um, okay, so, you know, building on this, so talking about the monet- our global monetary system as a whole, um, who do you think the main players are in this system? And how would you describe them? Sure. Sure. Let me just quickly make one um, little sort of meta point, should I say. You know, in, in a lot of sort of traditional speaking about economies, when people are asked about what money is, they're often, they often recite this functions of money approach. They just sort of they, they list these functions. And it's a, I, I really can't stand this approach. I find it like <laughs> incredibly money imprecise. And yeah. Yeah. The whole like store of value, means of exchange, unit of account. Exchange, this, I find yeah. it like yeah. an, mm-hmm. an incredibly vague and sort of like meaningless way of describing monetary systems. And the functions of money approach can be contrasted to the structure of money approach. So by, by, by this, I mean, you know, if I'm describing anything in the world, I can describe it by its functions or by its structure. Um, so, for example, if I'm looking at a chair, uh, I could, if I'm using a functional description, I could say something like the chair is a thing to sit on, all right, or a thing to stand on potentially, right? But actually, there's many, many structures in the world that you can do that. I mean, I can sit on, you know, a car, I could sit on a volcano, I can sit on many things, right? So actually, if you truly want to describe a chair, you've got to simultaneously describe a structure and how it achieves the functions, right? Because actually, there's many different structures that have overlapping functions in the world. So right, so I'll say the unique features of a chair, it has, it has a particular sort of known structure, and this tends to be used for the act of sitting, right? And actually, with the monetary system, it's very strange. People often sit in this realm where they just only describe the functions and then re- just neglect to describe any actual structure of how it they achieves those functions. And if those truly are the actual functions of that system, all right? So I often argue that the functions of money approach the kind of way of disguising the actual politics of money and the, and the structures there. So, And you can have different structures of money over time, but the current structure that we have is a, um, a three-tiered one, all right? And in the book, I'm describing these different layers of the monetary system. And at the, at the center of it is actually, you know, the state, or in the case of a place like the Eurozone, sort of a kind of like a meta-state entity, which issues a sort of first-tier credit money, all right, and this is something I'm going into the book, which is um, a credit money is kind of money that you you know issue out in the form of an IOU. All right, and this is something that's quite hard for people to understand. Often, that uh, money is 
issued out and pulled back in and it's kind of like pulsating structure right so there's this first tier um money that comes from the state um, which i can discuss if you want and but then there's actually a second tier which is built on top of that which is issued by the commercial banking sector who issue the second layer of money um and the metaphor i'm using in the book which is actually quite effective to to convey this is um is to get a person to think about a casino you know so if you walk into a casino or some gambling establishment you hand over cash at the counter and they take ownership of that cash and they issue out chips that can be used within the casino. That's a second tier form of money. It's a privately issued IOU for the first layer of money. All right. So that's what a casino chip is. Um, and actually, the banking sector does something quite similar. They can issue out digital chips. They will take ownership of your first tier money, as it were, and issue out this second layer. And so if you look at your bank account or your app or something, and you're seeing numbers there, that's a you're seeing um, basically those are these second tier promises, digital chips, as it were, issued out. But then any number of players can build on top of that. So PayPal, for example, can come along and say, we'll take your second tier chips and issue you third-tier chips. So what we call the monetary system right now, so for example, the, the US dollar, let's take it as a prime example, the US dollar is actually at least three different currencies with the same name, issued by different different players, right? Um, the US state, the US banking sector, players like PayPal, they're all issuing dollars at different, and that are chained together. Um, and what's called the cashless society is often a situation where you're moved away from the first layer of money and pushed into the second and third. All right, so you're pushed into using these corporate and bank-issued digital chips, as it were, or digital digital money, um, which is altering the sort of politics and structure of the monetary system. I see, I see. And, you know, I think perhaps the most fascinating part about that, that whole, your description is the fact that, you know, um, in our sort of sort of regular understanding of what money is, we think all of all of this is I mean, all of this technically does constitute money, but we think of these, you know, bank chips, state chips, and, you know, sort of fintech chips on top of that to be identical, whereas you you say that they are not, right? They're not, they're not the same. They're not synonymous with each other. No, there are different forms. I mean, they're related and much like, you might call them symbiotic potentially, Um but that doesn't mean there are different forms of money with different issuers. But for example, a second tier, let's call it a you know, casino chip issued by the banking sector. But let's, say, let's, let's call them digital chips issued by the banking sector. That in many ways, it's a, a promise for the first tier. So if you're going to an ATM, for example, let's say you've got a, you've got a bunch of numbers in your bank account and you go to an ATM, what they're actually doing it's, it's conceptually equivalent to walking back to the cashier at a casino and saying, give me my cash, right? You're, you're destroying the chips that they, they gave you. or the, They're retracting them away from you and then giving you the thing that they promised. All right. So, and, uh, you know, so in many ways, the, the banking, the, the, the digital money that we see in our bank accounts is predicated upon access to cash because they're actually psychologically linked to that. Many people only trust that second part of the monetary system because they believe it can be redeemed back with state money. Much like you only trust a casino chip because you believe it can be redeemed back for cash at the cashier. The key difference, of course, between the banking sector and casinos, though, is banks have the ability to issue far more of these digital chips than they have in state money. This is sometimes called fractional reserve banking. 
but probably more accurately referred to as credit creation of money. And banks basically do this when they're issuing loans. They they issue out. I mean, this is quite a technical process, but large parts of the money supply are formed when they um, uh, are issuing loans and or, or yeah, creating loans, and they issue money in the process, or they issue those chips in the process in order to obtain those loans. And um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of like there are different forms, but they they tethered together and linked together. Uh, and in one of the sort of terrible ways that cashless society is often framed is as some kind of upgrade. All right, to the cash system. So they say, oh, well, these are, you know, digital money is just basically the same as cash, but just like a more upgraded version. And it's, it's not an upgrade, all right? It's a, uh, these are systems that are linked together and they actually can't really, the, the, that, that second system can't operate without access to the first. Right? So it's... Um, I see, I see. And you also say in the book, and maybe perhaps not in these exact words, that there's a war on cash going on right now, right? So just very briefly, because you've already alluded to this um, in, in a way, but who are the players who are sort of waging this war and why are they doing so? Sure. I mean, what's called a cashless society is basically a kind of privatization, of a full privatization of the monetary system or you know, already we largely in many many societies already have um, large parts of the money system um, controlled by the, the banking sector rather than the state. But um, what's happening here is a uh, the the players that, st- that stand to gain most from the so-called cashless society are is the banking sector itself because it forms the and it, it has the it has the underlying infrastructure or the underlying account infrastructure of the digital money system is based upon the banking sector. So the banking sector itself is very pro uh, cashless society. I mean, for example, Bank of America's CEO openly comes out and says things like, we want a cashless society and we have more to gain than everybody else from a cashless society because we're going to get ever more fees and data. All right. And we control the underlying infrastructure. That's why we want it. It's a commercial play, right? But then, of course, players like Visa and MasterCard um, or in India, it'd be players like Paytm and so on, all these different types of players that are so uh, um, I mean, Paytm is slightly different, but like, you know, let's just take Visa and MasterCard. They say specialize in basically um, telling the banks who to move you know, which accounts to move money between, right? So for Visa and MasterCard, it's very simple. I mean, every cash transaction is a transaction they don't make any money from, right? Um, and this applies to all card networks, right? Um, so, and of course, there's different different card networks around the world that are, that are doing this. And so those players, but then the fintech world is um, another another player because the fintech world, fintech is about automating finance, right? So, and you basically cannot automate non-digital money, right? So if you're running, for example, a fintech platform that does automated loan issuance, something like that, or automated insurance claims, you basically can't, it's very hard for you to operate with a cash system because cash is offline, cash is human, peer-to-peer type system. And if you're wanting to automate everything, you are ideologically against the cash system, all right? So many fintech players place themselves um, in alliance with the banking sector and Visa, MasterCard, et cetera, because they're operating, they're aiming for the same thing. And with that comes big tech companies as well, because actually big tech companies have the same thing. You, you can't create giant tech platforms with cash. You, If you wanted to create planetary scale mega tech corps, 
you've got to have planetary scale digital money systems. I mean, Amazon relies upon this. It can't operate unless it's fused into huge digital finance infrastructures. So, of course, they're ideologically against the cash system. Even if many people, ordinary people, aren't against the cash system, the ideological message that will come from the centers of power is that cash is somehow some kind of backwards or redundant form. Um, and then finally, you'll find states. I mean, of course, in India, there's been a lot of stuff around, you know, um, the Modi government and attacking the cash system. But many states have had ambiguous relationships to the cash system. I mean, bear in mind, cash is a state-issued form of money, but um, it creates within different departments and different sort of uh, governments, diff different government departments, there's different agendas. So, for example, your tax authorities like to claim that cash, you know, prevents tax, um, even though the banking sector facilitates vast tax avoidance they'll they'll somehow you know think that the cash systems where all the tax um evasions happening um but you know there are some central bankers who find themselves being anti-cash although that's like a slightly more complex issue because not all of them are um some security officials um but also bear in mind that in many countries let's take for example the uk where i was for a long time you know the political elite is captured by the banking sector and captured by the financial sector the financial sector is so powerful in the uk that actually if you're somebody like for example boris johnson um you know you're hanging out at parties with banking execs and your your sense of what's normal in the world is constructed in this this context all right and what's what represents progress is constructed in, the, in this particular context so for many politicians they've kind of internalized this ideology that comes out of the corporate sector that ever more speed scale automation and corporate systems is a good thing for humanity so actually even many like well-meaning politicians will start to find themselves being like what we've got to do to, to create progress is to undermine the public cash system and promote um get people to get into these big banking institutions, which is sometimes goes under this rubric of financial inclusion. Um, so there's a very, yeah, this is a very big, um, that's a broad overview. Right, I see, I see. And, you know, I, I would like to draw your attention to maybe uh, FinTech, right? So this, this combination of um, these actors using financial technology to sort of change the role that financial institutions play and you know this reminded this your book actually reminded me of this this article that i'd read many years back i don't remember what the title was but there was a line which stayed with me which is that you know now and i think this was from 2018 or something like that finance is getting into technology and technology is getting into finance right so you mentioned you know how this sort of um amalgamation of sorts kind of start this process started after the 2008 financial crisis when there was kind of a trust deficit especially as far as the you know um, these financial institutions on wall street in america were concerned so a little bit of background if you could give a little bit of background as to how this thing came to be that would be great sure yeah 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 well i mean as yeah during the financial crisis of 2008 2007 2008 there was this huge you know, the banking sector was seen as this real, like, you know, demonic kind of force, right? Everyone is against the banking sector. And for good reason. I mean, it's the, to a, a bunch of toxic things that happen in the banking sector. But at that time, players like Google, for example, were still, were still seen in quite like positive terms as, as, as sort of forces for good in society. Okay. Um, 
at least, for example, in the sort of Western sphere, you know, in the US and UK, places like that. And um, they, people were quite uncritical about big tech, right? And especially in the context of people being super critical about the banking sector, the kind of big tech world took advantage of that situation to promote itself as being a much better kind of more... You know, the whole aesthetics of tech are so kind of like bright and like friendly and sort of like geeky as opposed to the sort of, you know, image of finance, right? And they really sort of traded on this idea. And actually in the realm of fintech, so fintech was basically these companies that would trade upon these tech aesthetics and would use that to try and claim that they were revolutionizing finance. And in the, around the aftermath of the financial crisis, this was a very appealing narrative. So they're saying, you know, escape from the big banks and escape from these, you know, these kind of um, these players and use our systems to escape. Um, and, you know, as mentioned in the beginning, my book came out in 2013, my first book, and a lot of these people in the tech sector had the self-image that they were doing, alter, quote-unquote, alternative finance. This is how I ended up getting drawn into these circles, precisely this kind of self-image. Um, but it was became very, very apparent to me very quickly that what they classed as alternative finance was basically just automation. All right, so take, a, take something that's not yet automated and automate it. And actually, the say the word innovation often just meant automation. So they'll say we're innovating. It's like you are automating. That's what you're doing. It's a, and those they're just seen as synonymous. All right, automation is innovation, and that's what's going to create democratization. Right. So this was the standard fintech narrative, and you could apply it to any area of finance that wasn't yet automated. All right. So for example, you could do it to like. Again, you know, loan applications to service staff, you know, the sort of, you could apply this automation anywhere in the financial sector, right? Um, and the great claim to democratization was basically that through automation, you could lower costs. So one of the reasons why financial institutions would stay away from certain communities was that they just weren't profitable enough. So for like a low-income community, it's just not profitable enough for banks to go and try and serve low-income communities. Um, but they become more profitable if you can automate the interactions with those people. So, so right, say, okay, you just use your app to contact us. Don't like try to come into our branch. You know, um, If you lower the costs of serving the people, suddenly they become, relatively speaking, more profitable in a kind of... Um, profit calculation and suddenly they become it would open up access to these people which was then again called financial inclusion and this kind of like you know positive spin but really it's about how do you absorb people into institutions that otherwise find them unprofitable all right um, and that's what's that's what it really is and many fintech companies specialize in doing that and bear in mind if you're running a big bank it's a huge institution and actually often big institutions are fairly slow on uh, new R&D and this kind of stuff. And it often suits them to outsource that to these startups initially, all right? So, uh, you know, bear in mind, if you're sitting in the boardroom of a bank and you have many different things you have to discuss, you know, you've got, for example, if you're sitting in the Bank of America, you've got, hey, you know, what's going to happen if we get exposed to like massive geopolitical risk from you know, Russian, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine? All right. This is the kind of thing that these bank execs are having to think about. They're not always having to think. They're not always thinking about you know what does our app look like. 
All right. So that's just, that's but one of many things they have to think about. Whereas if you're running a 20 person startup, you can solely focus on these like very niche things, like how do we create a good user experience on this app, right? And really, if that 20 person startup was a was within a corporation, it would be a single division that specialized in you know building apps. But you, what often happens with these startups is that they initially start outside the corporate sector, funded by VCs and uh, angel investors, and then they later get absorbed in to the financial sector. So they get sort of tacked on to the banking sector as, as they you know, get bought up or acquired. And often the VCs will require that. They'll say, you have to exit. We have to exit our investment by selling you to some big bank that's going to do this. And actually, I, I was just in London recently. I saw a perfect example of this, which is um, back in around, I guess, like 2013, 2014 or so, there's this group called Nutmeg, which is doing automated investment management. And they had all these adverts in the London Underground, which said, don't trust the bankers. Right? They literally had these things. Don't trust the bankers was their big thing, right? And they had all these like, you know, we're this like friendly automated investment company, like robo advisor kind of thing. I went back recently and now underneath the little nutmeg advert, it says a JP Morgan company, all right? They've been absorbed into JP Morgan as a division now, right? So basically what happened there is in reality, they were doing outsourced R&D for the banking sector funded by VCs, and they've now been incorporated in. And this happens to so many fintechs, and really most fintechs can't survive unless they do absor- get absorbed into these big companies, right? And so really the fintech sector can be seen as the sort of leading edge of how you expand the power of the financial sector. And I, I don't want to say that there's not any good things that come from this. I mean, sometimes there are some good things from this, but when you, you've got to kind of step away from all the revolutionary rhetoric and realize that what's often happening is they're, they're trying to expand these um, existing financial systems. And there's very little space for kind of alternative fintech, non-corporate fintech, all right? Um, that often just doesn't get reported on, doesn't like get... Um, so the fintech sector really is... Um, yeah, I mean, one last thing I say is about it, you can kind of sort of bifurcate the fintech sector as well into what they try to automate. I mean, many of them originally were just trying to automate the front service layer of the financial sector. So service staff, they just like get rid of them rather than having service staff do self-service. So saying, you know, rather than walking into a branch or you just go onto an app. Okay. And at the sort of second phase of lots of fintech automation was about how do you automate the bankers themselves? People who historically would make decisions. So then you would use AI for that, to use different things like for, for, for that process. So there's different styles of fintech, but overall, the, the overarching trajectory is how do you automate finance, which in turn, of course, makes it easier for big finance to integrate with big tech because big tech needs these automated systems so it can integrate in you know, via APIs or whatever they're using to, to do this, right? So this is the real politic that's happening when you sort of zoom out. Right. Right. And okay, thank you for that. That was very comprehensive. So that was, yeah, great. And, you know, so what you have said, it kind of flies in the face of what we see in the media, which is that, you know, the fintech and traditional banks, they're sort of competitors, right? Because you've mentioned, as you've explained right now, and you've also mentioned this in the book, like both the uh, this fintech sector and the banks, they kind of plug into each other, right? So they are, they have kind of like a symbiotic relationship as opposed to any real competitive thing. Okay, while that might, might exist in other domains, right? So why do you think that is, especially in the media? Like we have this narrative of, you know, fintechs and banks competing with each other. Well, partly partly it's it just comes down to lack of knowledge, you know, I mean, there is quite poor understanding of um, 
financial systems and monetary systems. So when there's an aesthetic change, a surface level change, it can appear like it's revolutionary. All right. Bear in mind, you know, this be, I'll just give you a very simple, a very simple example of this, right? Like in London, there's this group called Revolut. And Revolut, its whole name is like based on revolution. It was a sort of neobank, a digital neobank. Um, and Revolut, Revolut did not have a banking license, all right? You, you're not allowed to operate in many places unless you have a banking license, right? To, to be a money transmitter or to, to be an actual bank, you need a banking license, which means you can plug into the actual central bank, right? Revolut didn't have that. So what really Revolut was, was an interface that would be pasted over the banking sector. So it would superficially look different and it might offer a different user experience. But in the end, it's, feed, it's funneling stuff through to the underlying banking sector. Now, if you're a journalist that's approaching and you're looking at this, you, you might say, oh, well, look, it's, it's different. It's like a digital app bank. And it's like, well, but it's plugging into the actual banks in the background. I mean, so in a sense, there is a type of battle. It maybe is battling for user attention in a sense. But it's not really fundamentally um, undermining the underlying banking sector. And actually, one of the good metaphors you might want to use for this is um, if you think about something like a, a, the iPhone, um, you know, the iPhone uses an underlying operating system, the iOS operating system. And there's a whole plethora of independent developers who might build apps for, the, for iOS systems. All right. Now, when you build an iOS app, you're strengthening the Apple ecosystem, right? You're building stuff on top of its, its underlying system. And actually, many fintechs rely upon, if you're using this as a metaphor, they rely upon the underlying account structure ecosystem provided by the banking sector. But they do provide these sort of like interfaces over it, which can sort of superficially look like you're moving away from the banks, right? Um, and this is often what's happening with, 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 with fintechs. I mean, this doesn't mean that there aren't some authentic changes or big new players that can emerge or shifts in power. I mean, sure, these players can get new forms of power, right? Um, but also bear in mind in large-scale capitalist systems, we often get distracted by brand names, right? Rather than looking at the actual power structures, you know. So you know, it's, it's true that like there can be sort of shifts in which brand name currently has the most sort of user recognition and power. But overall, when you look at the overall structure of the system, you're often just seeing these like slight reorientations in power. The same staff will be working for the same organization, these, these organizations, and they might be like moving around a bit and so on. But like um, overall, there hasn't really been any disruption of the banking sector. I mean, so for example, in the UK, all these fintechs about you know 12 years ago were, were saying, are we going to come and disrupt the banking sector? And yet the big five banks in the UK, Barclays, Lloyds, et cetera, are still just as big as ever. And in fact, they're even bigger now because they, they now can totally control the, the digital payment system, right? So in reality, the, the, the fintech things actually worked out for them more than anything else. And this is why it's really frustrating. You then see these articles that come out where they're like, we have all these people sort of saying, oh, well, it turns out that banks and fintechs can work together. And you're like, oh, of course. I mean, this was always obvious, right? They, uh, it's only not obvious if you're not, if you're not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> I see, I see. Okay, so zooming out a little bit. Um, so one of the sort of benefits of a cashless society that are often touted out not but not just by private actors but even state players is that of financial inclusion and you mention and you clearly you do not agree with this and you've put forward a very comprehensive case in the book so could you speak about that a little bit 
Yeah, look, there's a bunch of arguments that are pushed out about why cash is bad, right? And there's there's two approaches that you can take when you're when you're um, facing these arguments. People say, oh, it's used for criminal transactions, it's used for tax evasion, it's you know, dirty, whatever. There's a whole bunch of these different things that are pushed out about about cash, and each of those can be can be dismissed. Um, for example, digital systems are massively used for cybercrime. Um, accounts are always hacked. Um, there's massive dangers using digital systems. Um, you know, having your your wallet uh, taken from you when you lose, you know, like a little bit of money is is not as bad as having your entire entire digital account drained. You know, there's many ways to look at this. You can talk about the, on the tax side. You know, the vast majority of tax evasion and, and um, avoidance happens through the normal banking sector. It doesn't happen through the cash system. Um, offshore finance systems all happen through digital digital money. So you can go th- through each of these. Um, or alternatively, you can say, look, even if even if some of those critiques of the cash system are true, there are trade-offs in society, and sometimes we need to make decisions about what those trade-offs are and whether you. Um, so, the cash system in particular is highly important for resilience of monetary systems. If you want to have a resilient monetary system, you want a cash the cash system, and I can explain why. If you want to have a System that preserves elements of privacy is super important. Um, otherwise, you can get full surveillance, which is very difficult if you're, especially in places that have democratic deficits. Um, it's also uh, highly uh, has massive problems of exclusion when you um, push people away from the cash system because not everybody wants to be onboarded into the banking sector and not everybody can either. So you have huge exclusion problems. All right, so it's fine. Let's say you're a person who said, well, I think if we take get rid of the cash system, we're going to deal with like, you know, certain forms of crime. It's like, okay, well, maybe you might partially solve that problem. Probably not, but let's, let's hypothetically say you partially solve some of that. Now you've created huge resilience problems for your monetary system, huge exclusion problems. Um, and a whole bunch of like a potential surveillance nightmare, all right? Now, on, on net, that's not a great thing. Now, this whole issue about digital payments being good for inclusion is very, very dubious because actually the cash system is the thing that's the most inclusive form of payment in society in the sense that, you know, you don't need any account to use the cash system. It's completely non-judgmental. It's not based on having to get an institution to agree to um, uh, serve you, all right? Um, and actually, one of the best metaphors we're using when talking about the cash system is, um, you know, it's often presented as being the horse cart of payments by the, the payments industry likes to present cash as some sort of old, you know, outdated form. Whereas I say, no, it's actually far more like the bicycle of payments, right? The bicycle is an older and simpler form than something like a car, but the bicycle is incredibly useful. And if you get rid of bicycles in the society of cars, you're going to have huge problems. All right. It's, it creates resilience, diversity. And actually, it's actually like the public bicycle system of payments um, versus the private Uber of payments, which is something like the normal apps. Now, And, I, and, I, and again, there's no need to have a battle between these. You can actually have both of these existing. You could be a person, let's, let's think about transport. You could be a person who actually likes Uber, but that doesn't mean you want bicycles removed. You actually can like both. So being pro-cash doesn't mean you have to be anti-digital. All right, um, It's about resilience and diversity in the monetary system. 
And um, but often what the digital payments industry, the, the actual industry that benefits from from promoting demonizing cash, what they try to say is that if you are pro digital, you have to be anti cash. All right, this is just self serving. All right, that's totally a self serving narrative, and it's not true. Right. So um, in terms of actually if you're interested in inclusion, you should definitely be promoting both of these. <laughs> right. So saying, you know, you have these groups like the Better Than Cash Alliance, which is the sort of anti-cash group that's, you know, um, has convinced all these like development agencies and governments to get on board with it. Um, you know, they try to create this idea that somehow digital payments represent this huge inclusion thing. Um, but really it's like, going back to some of the stuff I was saying is that, you know, it's far more like absorption than inclusion. Like you have these huge institutions that want to absorb new customers. And so, yeah, you're being included into Visa, MasterCard and the banking sector and big tech. So, you know, the the cash system is an alternative to that and that should be preserved if you're interested in a diverse type of inclusion. So those are some big points. Those are some of the meta points I'd say. Oh, that's more than enough, honestly. Like, that was good. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, so wrapping up this particular section of uh, our show, which is, you know, you mentioned that it's kind of difficult to maintain a critical outlook. And I'm quoting you verbatim from the book when it comes to speaking about cashless society, speaking about fintech. Uh, why do you think that is? And not just amongst the participants, the market participants themselves, but also observers, analysts, and so on. And as you mentioned, even state actors like central bank governors and so on yeah sure there's different reasons for this you know on the one hand think about the cash system has is a, is often it's a public public system so it doesn't have any like venture capital backers who are constantly pushing up marketing about it whereas the digital systems always have these big commercial players behind them that are constantly marketing so you're you're operating at an ideological disadvantage all the time with the cash system because it just doesn't get promoted by anybody, right? Even though it's super crucial for over half the world's population, the cash system, it's far more important than many of the digital payment systems. And yet it's presented as if it's just somehow like dead, right? Which is completely not true, but ideologically, all the messaging is against it, right? So even people who are quite critical about thinking about economic systems will often be totally oblivious to this. They often just take it as self-apparent that, oh, yeah, the cash system will disappear and that's obviously progress. And they've never really thought beyond that or why they think that, right? So I do a lot of this analysis around sort of the concept of hegemony or hegemony, depending on how you how you say it. And in the original sense of the term, and, and the term actually comes from this Antonio Gramsci, who's this um, critical theorist from Italy, who was saying, you know, in large-scale economic systems, you know, in sort of traditional sort of, let's say, old sort of like Marxists and left-wing thinkers would always be like talking about how these like, you know, nefarious corporations were sort of like exploiting people. And there's always this idea that it was done through force of some kind, right? That, you know, you have these big, you know, powerful institutions that are dominating you. But actually, Gramsci was saying, you know, a large part of how this power actually works is through ideas and through subtle cultural processes. So, In particular, the ideal form of power is when you get people to internalize the norms of one interest group and believe that it's in the interests of everybody, all right? So when you start to say things like, well, cashless society is inevitable, it's just progress, actually that ideology is most in the interests of big tech and big finance, 
right? But you might channel it through yourself, believing that it's for the good of everybody, right? That's a classic example of a hegemonic thought structure, right? And many people don't even realize that they think this. They're just sort of stuck in these systems. They don't really know where these belief systems come from. And if you're operating in that environment, it's incredibly hard because you're, um, for example, if people's sort of thought systems have been polluted like this, when they're making decisions, they'll often make decisions that act in the interests of powerful players. So they might even find themselves choosing to use these systems or they might experience themselves as choosing and yet the choice might not actually be emanating from within themselves it could be coming from some much broader social power process right but they might experience themselves so they say hey well but you know we're 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 the ones driving this right when reality is coming from the top down and lots of the messaging that you'll find around this issue you'll always find it presented as a bottom-up issue people tell these journalists will say well consumers are all turning towards this because everybody just naturally sees that they want this and it's driven by customer demand, right? And corporate execs will always mirror this, this, this thing. You'll never ever find them talking about their power interests. They will always talk about, they'll always frame it, everything in terms of customers, right? Everything is, you know, apparently driven by the small person in, in the economy, but really what's often happening in large scale interdependent economic systems is that large conglomerations of oligopoly players are the ones that actually set the direction of travel and pull everybody else along with them slowly but surely all right and that's what's happening when you see this shift to the circle cash of society is that that's where that process is playing out in society but people might internalize a belief that somehow it's driven by them right and that's a very hard thing to convey to people because it often sort of challenges it's a quite a difficult concept to understand um but yeah, and so it's it's quite lonely work when you're trying right. to sort of point the stuff out. And I'm sure you must also be, you know, you must be accused by some people by, you know, that you are robbing people of their agency, that this is what they want, right? So, you know, but as you mentioned, it's it's a much more like very, very complicated tale. So, well, well of course, I mean, it depends. Yeah. And, um, mm-hmm. and I realize that, you know, but you think about it in sort of very typical mainstream economics it has this highly apolitical way of speaking about choice, right? So in typical mainstream economics, you'll find, and I'm at risk of saying, you know, very broad brush things here, but you'll find this idea. It's like, well, somebody chose something, therefore it represents what their true desire is, right? Um, And that's a highly loaded statement. Almost nobody in a, you know, a large-scale economy, but not even large-scale economies, even just in like family groups, in cultures, you're always tied together with other people who are pulling upon you and changing your perspectives in various ways or altering you or pushing you through peer pressure and so on. There's many, many forces going on in a society beyond pure sort of like isolated choice. In fact, pure isolated choice is almost non-existent, right? And yet it's presented as being somehow this pristine thing, especially in economics, which has this very highly, um, often this very depoliticized way of speaking about it. Um, But if the actual human experience of choice is something very, very different. And, you know, I use this, this, uh, this thing, this idea in the book, and I'll, I'll try to keep this short here, but like you, there's a difference between active choice and passive choice. All right. So, or active process and passive. So, so for example, I'm a guitarist and when I'm trying to buy a new guitar, it's a very active process. It's a big decision, right? I go and I sit and I look at things. I look at the Fender Jaguar guitar and the, the music shop and I sit there angsting about it for a long time. And when I finally hand over money for that thing, 
it's a real big process. I'm saying, okay, I'm finally really making this choice, right? Now, that's a very active process. A lot of what happens um, in our market societies though, is actually quite different. You'll find a passive kind of slumping process where what you're doing is not really expressing agency. You're just not giving resistance. Okay, this is quite hard to convey. So a lot of people, for example, in London right now, London a few years ago, um, had much higher cash usage, yet suddenly everybody was, quote-unquote, deciding to use digital payments suddenly, all right, in the last couple of years. Now, how did that actually happen? Well, it's a network chain reaction effect where everybody saw everybody else around them and they were getting all these signals and they basically just fell into it, right? It was passive. It wasn't an active process at all, right? And this happens with many technologies. You just fall into them and you sort of slump into them, right? And that's... Um, actually well documented in anthropology you know how sort of social conventions form and how these, these processes happen but it's often glossed over in market economics i see i see, I see. okay um coming to maybe the final part of our conversation here um i would say okay now you've been involved with the crypto movement from I think it's very infancy, I think back in the early 2000s, right? Where you, I, you mentioned in the book that you tried to make use of Bitcoin to pay a roommate or something like that back in 2013. And um, so I think that part of the book, I think I found it to be very, very fascinating. So starting with Bitcoin, and maybe you could discuss some other similar currencies as well, maybe Ethereum, for instance. So what are some of the inherent contradictions that you write about the book within the whole crypto universe, really, starting with Bitcoin. Yeah, sure. My objective in the book is to sort of try and put the crypto movements in the context of this broader processes we're seeing in the financial system, right? Because a lot of crypto books right now don't really talk that much about their, their position, like their context that they're, that they're in. But really, uh, you have to see these crypto movements in the context of those processes I was describing earlier, where you're seeing these huge conglomerations of corporate power which are crushing the cash system in the process. Okay, now a lot of early the early cypherpunk movements, which were these sort of political technology groups that were around in the nineties, which were actually building out the components that would later come together to form Bitcoin. The one of the core intuitions that they had was that in a future cashless society, if it was to exist, there'd be huge problems of surveillance and concentration of power in big corporates and states, right? So they said, if that future is to come to pass, we better have designed some kind of digital alternative, uh, kind of digital cash, as it were, um, to try and act as a kind of counterpower. So, and they were building out various types of experiments and a lot of those experiments um, or components of them came together in 2008 in the Bitcoin white paper um, which kind of put a bunch of those components into a kind of a recipe, an elegant recipe. And then voila, you had the Bitcoin system, which emerged, right? Or emerged over the next few years as developers built it out and so on. Um, and yeah, I was involved in the early London Bitcoin community, um, partly because I was just, just generally interested about lots of alternative types of finance and stuff. Um, and also I have this anthropological impulse. I like to go and explore systems and experience them and stuff. So I was going and I was trying out Bitcoin and I was, uh, you know, I exchanged quite a few numbers in my, my first book for Bitcoin. So, you know, and also with like things like Dogecoin as well and stuff. So I had hands-on experience with a lot of the early, early parts of the system 
And actually, at, at a time when there was no proper exchanges, so I saw the first exchanges come about, which are often very like dodgy and badly made and stuff. And so I had a lot of sort of firsthand experience of the, the scene. Um, and but one thing I immediately noticed in the Bitcoin system is that you know there's a kind of a bifurcation between the technological design and the monetary theory, or perhaps the monetary ideology, if you want to call it that, right? So. At a technical level, it was highly radical, right? So basically at a technical level, these blockchain systems are basically about how can you take large groups of people, large networks of people who don't know each other and allow them to coordinate action between themselves without there being a central player, all right? Um, historically, it's a very, very hard thing to do. It's very hard for very large bodies of people to coordinate without going through central institutions. Normally, we in normal society, you'd use big institutions to underpin relationships between strangers who don't know each other. Okay. So the, the large part of the crypto community was thinking about that. And the case of Bitcoin, it's like, you know, how do we issue tokens and move them between each other without there being a central party involved? And that's what the Bitcoin system was really about. And the, the protocol basically facilitates that. Okay. Um, so at a technological level, it was fascinating, right? It's very innovative, actually quite beautiful in some ways. Um, depending on who you are, at least in the early days, it felt quite elegant and interesting how it worked. Um, but actually, at a monetary level, it was very conservative. Okay, so the the ideology which came and started to be built around it was this idea of a sort of strange commodity-like hard money that would like um, be an antidote to the terrible, you know, fiat money system that could expand and contract and stuff right so there was a lot of the sort of monetary scaremongering that would go on with and i'm very critical about the normal monetary system but i could immediately see that the the so-called solution being presented by the bitcoin world was was quite shallow actually um and often quite um actually quite disingenuous a lot of the time right um but also quite ingenious because actually really what the Bitcoin system is when you start to peel away the layers is a highly sophisticated way of moving very crude tokens around. All right. Um, but many people would see the highly sophisticated technological infrastructure and would believe that the monetary system implemented on top of it was highly sophisticated as well. But actually, it's a very crude system. And actually, the... It isn't really a monetary system at all. What it actually is is a kind of system of digital collectibles um, that you can uh, trade, right? And uh, you can actually use that for exchange, but it's quite different to to a monetary system. And this is quite hard to explain because many people, if you if you only have a sort of surface level experience of how monetary systems work, Bitcoin superficially looks quite similar. Um, but I actually often argue that Bitcoin is like a parasitic system, right? And um, by that, I mean in the sort of ecological sense of the term, in terms of like, you know, a parasite is a type of an organism that depends on a host organism in order to survive, all right? And they can actually be very, very successful. There's nothing necessarily wrong with being a parasite. It's a very valid strategy to take, all right? Um, and actually, the Bitcoin system relies upon other monetary systems in order to actually work. And I can explain why. But um, it's, and so it's a very successful parasitic system that rides upon the US dollar system. Um, but the self-image of the Bitcoin community believes that somehow it's this like predator that's going to destroy the dollar system. But really, it relies upon it. Um, and so this is why I'm, you know, I have, I'm, I have quite a controversial position in the Bitcoin community because I will say things like this. Um, and that doesn't mean that system isn't useful. You can use that system for many things, but it 
isn't going to displace the US dollar, let's put it that way. Um, and I often talk about a process called counter trade, which is how Bitcoin transactions actually, actually work. And counter trade is basically when you're using non-monetary objects for exchange. So you can, you can do this with any type of object. So for example, if I have a, uh, I don't know, a wristwatch that costs, let's say, $100 um, in a monetary system, and for example, you have a jacket that costs $100. Um, or let's say you have a jacket that costs $200. And I say to you, hey, could I give you two of these wristwatches for that jacket? That's an act of swapping two money-priced objects for each other using their monetary price to work out the exchange ratio, right? Now, if I was an alien watching from outer space and I saw that interaction, I might say, oh, these humans use watches as their monetary system. But what I'll be missing is what was actually happening was two separate monetary transactions that were canceling each other out, all right? Because what, what I was actually doing was I was... Um, selling you the watches for $200 and then passing you the $200 back to buy your jacket. Okay. Right. That's a counter trade in interaction, but it will superficially look like this kind of um, these objects moving in. And all Bitcoin transactions operate like this. It has a price established on the US dollar market first, which then induces this counter trade ability, this ability to be swapped for other things, right? Which is why if you ever look at a quote unquote a Bitcoin price for any object, it constantly fluctuates as the dollar price changes, right? So it's, it's a counter trade ratio. It's not actually a price. Um, and the whole Bitcoin system operates like this. And this is why it's a parasitic form. It's not actually, it's not actually competing with the dollar. It relies upon its dollar pricing for its exchangeability. All right. And actually, this is why what makes it so interesting in a way is that actually it's a strange shape-shifting system that will like, um, uh, can ride on top of the monetary system. And, and you can then use it for different things. So it, it can be useful. Um, but that's my main point. But obviously, I'll, I'll try to end this now because I've been going on for, for a bit here. But um, obviously, since Bitcoin, there's been a whole efflorescence of creativity beyond Bitcoin. Because lots of people got fed up with the Bitcoin system and say, you know, it's actually it's too crude. It doesn't really do enough stuff. And let's try to iterate upon that. And things like Ethereum emerge from that. Um, and there are some very interesting things that are happening in that world. Um, probably too many to go into in a short amount of time here. But, but I think, you know, one of my frustrations is that the crypto community um, might have come out of this concern about a future cashless society, but actually in many situations have joined the war on cash. They actually often will agree with the idea that we have to automate everything and scale everything and speed everything up, right? And in a weird way have sort of put themselves in alignment with players like Visa and MasterCard rather than actually doing you know, defending analog non-automated systems. So in a strange way, we've seen this alliance between the big banks, PayPal, Visa, and the crypto world, increasingly through things like stable coins and stuff, which all actually always now are actually operating on the same, with the same business models in many, in many senses, or at least the same agenda. And they're all actually against the cash system, which increasingly is like the, the most countercultural form of payment we actually have in the sense that it doesn't go along with the grain of the uh, corporate profit optimizing tendency. So this is a hard, a hard thing to convey, you know, so it's, and it's a lonely position, right? Because it's sort of, um, <laughs> so I'd, I'd like other people to join me in this position. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure your uh, words here will definitely, you know, sp spur that on. 
Okay, just to sort of uh, almost, I think it's time to conclude. So you mentioned in the book that, you know, um, cash doesn't have a lot of people fighting in its corner, right? So um, so it, do you have a small, if I may say, elevator pitch with which you might want to end this conversation, maybe in defense of cash or something like that? Yeah, sure. What I'll say is actually there are there are millions of people who prefer the cash system. And actually, in many, many situations, the cash system is actually more advanced. Now, the final thing I'll say is that this book is actually w- within a broader body of critique from, from you know, other people as well who, who are criticizing our reliance upon digital systems more generally. Okay, so I think we're going to start to see going forward an increased appreciation for analog systems. So we live within this ideology, which comes really from the corporate sector, um, Silicon Valley and spaces, that somehow ever greater scale, speed, automation, et cetera, are always better. But actually, these highly complex scaled digital systems are actually incredibly vulnerable. And it's short-sighted to believe that somehow becoming ever more dependent upon those is a naturally some kind of natural evolution. Sure, it increases corporate profits, but it doesn't increase societal welfare, really. Right? Actually, if you're, if you're interested in increasing the societal welfare, you should be building resilient and diverse systems, not these monolithic um, corporate digital ones, right? So I think we're going to start to see an increasing appreciation going forward, not only about you know, cash, but about sort of non-automated, non-digital analog systems more generally, I think is going to, I think actually going to have a comeback in future, especially in an age where we're facing ever more risks to digital systems. So for example, in geopolitical risks, a huge risk of cyber crime or cyber attacks on these systems, it's actually incredibly dangerous to be um, completely dependent upon, upon these digital infrastructures. Um, but also in a future of climate change, where you're having ever more extreme weather events and stuff, this idea that being dependent upon digital systems is, you know, that's very, um, it's very risky. And, you know, I'll, I'll maybe I'll end with one just very simple simple uh, point which is you know the federal reserve points out that um uh in the wake of a as, as hurricanes are approaching uh there's a massive spike in demand for cash in the u.s precisely because people just realize cash doesn't crash right and actually an offline form of money is far more advanced than a digital form of money in that situation right so i think we're going to start to see as, as people starting to collect grapple with this idea that actually we need to get away from this ideology that more complexity is always better um and so and to seek balance in the systems um thank you for your time this was really a fascinating conversation and i would highly recommend uh brett's book cloud money and yep so my guest today has been brett scott and we spoke about his latest book cloud money cash cards crypto and the war for our wallets published by penguin books Thank you for listening. Thanks a lot.